0: By sports Interaction, sports Sportsbook.
1: Welcome back to Game Over Toronto on SDPN. Arnish Patel and Armand Buntike here with you live tonight after the Leafs took on a tough Islanders team at home in uh, Scotiabank Arena. Um, we have a tough episode a tough loss (laughs) to kind of discuss but a fantastic episode nonetheless uh make sure you share the podcast with all of your friends and message in the chat if you have any particular questions you want to ask our special guest uh but before we go ahead and introduce him we got a shout out our sponsor uh sports interaction wanna bet you can do it at Sports Interaction, Canada Sportsbook. Football continues, basketball is back, and the hockey season is well underway. Bet pre-game, live, and play, are on one of our many prop bets made for Canadians by Canadians. Sports Interaction makes it easy to deposit, uh, play, and cash out. Join now and see all Sports Betting has to offer. Head to SportsInteraction.com/SDPN. That's SportsInteraction.com/SDPN. Ontario only, 19 and older, and please play responsibly. Armand, I am very excited today to announce our special guest for tonight. He's a draft and prospect reporter for The Athletic and author of On the Clock, Behind the Scenes with the Toronto Maple Leafs at the NHL Draft, forward written by our very own Steve Dangle. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm so happy to introduce our inaugural guest for Game Over Toronto, Scott Wheeler. Scott, welcome to the show. We're
0: so happy to Thank have you. you. Thank you for having me. I wish it was on uh, under better better circumstances here. That was <laughs> For sure. That was a weird one. It was
2: I mean, it was the, good for like the
0: final 4 minutes of it were yeah.
2: were really really weird. So <laughs> Yeah, that was a rough one.
1: Yeah, th- for all our viewers, um, make sure you stay tuned in throughout the show. Um, after we go through the game, uh, we'll be asking Scott some questions about the book. So make sure you type in our chat uh, if you have any particular questions you'd like to ask him about in regards to the book or as well as prospects. But yeah, we have to touch on this game. Yeah, The Leafs took on uh, the Islanders right at home. And so far, we were 4-0 in our last uh, in our last four games. We were on a, a winning streak against the Islanders. It looked like we had their number, right? And up until the last three minutes of that game... I thought it was it was all set. We're all ready and it's, gonna, it's a done deal. we were going to win. It's going to be our fifth uh, fifth win against them. But lo and behold, the hockey gods had, had different plans. Exactly. <laughs> they had different plans for us. And and Shogren had a horrendous misplay in front of that net or um, uh, chasing the puck behind the net. I don't know what he was thinking in that situation, but that poor pass led to an easy goal for Bailey to, to take an opportunity in the chaos and tie it, right? Yeah. Um, what were your thoughts on that? I mean that that was a, a horrible way to lose. Uh, Losing otherwise fantastic game. I mean we were out shooting them, we were out chancing them. I thought we had a, a great game up until that moment, right?
0: Yeah, that was the worst, or maybe second worst. There were a couple of ugly ones early in the year in terms of the way that they just let it slip through their fingers, right? The the two Martin Marner passes in overtime were brutal. Yeah. Uh, the two two Nylander ugly passes in overtime there too. Their decision-making at three-on-three at three all year has been, has been frankly, awful. So uh, it shows in the record in one and five, but it really just shows in the management of the puck, the way they're distributing it. They just don't settle it down, and they seem to make a lot of cute little plays at the top of the offensive zone that are going the other way for Ivan Rushes, which really is would be the, the very first thing that Sheldon Keefe is telling them uh, in terms of puck management as far as three-on-three three goes would be the the basics, which is there there is one area on the ice between the dots and high in the offensive zone is the one area at three on three that you don't want to be mishandling or misplaying the puck. And between Marner and Nylander there, uh, it was just an awkward sort of overtime yet again. And now suddenly they're one in five and three on three. And it's really the difference between them being an upper echelon team so far this year and being, uh, a sort of middle of the pack, uh, sort of bottom of, bottom third of the playoffs team, right? Yeah. So it's yeah, that was uh, that was an a, an odd way for them to to give that one away, and it's been like that for the Leafs in a lot of their losses this year. A lot of games where they've outshot teams three to two, right? We've seen that thirty low thirties yeah. to low twenties shot total. That's been a pretty pretty consistent thing, and credit to them all year long. Uh, but just that that closing out game, those insurance goals, uh, that's been their Achilles by and large this season. And it, and it comes back to bite them again.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, like you said, like one in five, that's a huge point swing. That's a 10 points that you pretty much leave on the board or five points in this case that you pretty much leave on the board. And that's a pretty big swing when you're 19 games into the season. And, you know, I, like I don't know what the issue is. Uh, you know, Nylander, Marner and Matthews are all superstars. They know how to pass the puck. So, you know, mm-hmm. do you think it's just an issue of them gripping the sticks a little too tight because of the record? Is that in their mind or is it a situation where it's just, you know, they're making they're a little too casual and they're making plays that are, you know, where they might be, you know, they need to grip their stick a little tighter. They're not taking it seriously enough or something like that. Like, which side think- do you land on?
0: Yeah. I think part of it is being a little too casual. They know better. Uh, that's, that's the bottom line, but it also just feels like as a team, they don't know how to take advantage of spacing and how to capitalize at three on three. Like it just feels almost like a systemic structural thing this season where there's a lot of swinging around the outside of the offensive zone. There isn't a lot of cutting in and out of space. And then as a result, you get that play like Marner made late, yeah. late in overtime there where three Leafs players are stacked at the top of the offensive zone. He's tightly covered. And his only option is that little swing drop pass that often gets intercepted and goes the other way. So, uh, yeah, some of it just feels like they don't know where to be or where to go or how to generate scoring chances at three on three. And that's that's got to be a bigger part of. I don't know whether it's their practices. I'm not at Leafs practices this year or in recent years, like I used to be. So I can't speak to whether they've even tried, uh, sort of execute, working on execution at three on three as a major part of a a practice in recent weeks. Uh, but if they haven't, it does feel like something at this point that should be a talking point for them, and should be something that Keith is going over tape with them on, and sort of just drilling home some of those basics because it does feel like the the fundamentals of three on three are missing there. Yeah, it's yeah, it's for sure.
1: Interesting because I mean the it seems like this team is is built for for three on three like we have some fast we have some very skillful players right and it just seems like they're just not clicking and it, it's like they're in their own minds at times right it started off with that that weird um uh that the weird pass that that Matthews just let go and it, it just snowballed right all the players yeah, just a, started getting there. started that, that head, was a bad right?
0: pass from Nylander too though as, as yeah. much yeah. as you'd like Matthews to skate onto that and catch that in stride that that pass led Matthews you you do not need to be leading guys eight ten feet in front of them at three on three <laughs> they've got space to slow down and settle it down and if you just put that you I'd rather see him put that uh, uh sort of in his feet or uh, at the base of his blade rather than send him a, a sort of long leading pass, right? Because Matthews can catch that. He can circle back into the neutral zone. And when Nylander gives him that leading pass, it just leaves, leaves it open to error. I right, Certainly, though, Matthews needs to get moving there and, and skate yeah. onto that pass too.
2: Yeah. I actually wanted to bring up a quote that just came out. Mike Stevens just tweeted it. And it says, uh, Matthews on the Leafs OT struggles lately. And it's in quotes. I don't think it's an area of concern. Obviously, we believe in this group and i don't know to me that's a quote that is a bit telling as to why we've been having three on three issues if if they don't think it's an area of concern you know because to me it is like this is a this is the difference between being you know second seed and having home ice advantage and being third seed and you know with every leafs playoffs years going to game seven that matters you know like it's a. It's a pretty, I don't know, it's a tough quote to come out after this game with the way they played. It's just, yeah. You yeah. Know, I, I just want to see better from them. It's it's disappointing.
0: It also hasn't, it hasn't been bad bounces, right? In OT, yeah. it hasn't been uh, shoddy refereeing. It hasn't been any of that. They've seen some of that in, in sort of poor luck and they deserve better results. You look at their expected goals, results, all of that. They're, they're near the bottom of the league and yeah. uh, goals below. So all of that is, has been a sort of plague them and there there's definitely some luck that goes into the leafs record so far this season but in three on three ot they just look they just look ill-prepared so that's a completely different thing than a bad bounce here and there or a bad call here and there or uh, uh hitting a post on a chain like they aren't even creating so uh, yeah. yeah it definitely feels like a bigger a bigger deal than the way that austin appears to have, have sort of positioned it in that quote but I mean at the same time, po- post game press Yeah, you can't take t- too much. Yeah. yeah tend into it. tend to be terrible and and you, you kind of have to expect that he's going to approach it that way.
2: Yeah. yeah. And you know, like you said, we did have a couple bad bounces in this game too. Like the first goal was going pretty much a foot out, uh, and yep. it just hits uh it hits David Camp and deflects in. And that is what it is. But you know we... And they
0: they had a good start, right? That's yeah we've exactly. for, for years. They had they had a really strong start. They controlled the first half of that first period and that's a big deal for them
2: yeah and i think they actually did pretty well after that first goal too to control play f- throughout you know the next almost 40 minutes you know and then that last you know <laughs> last little bit you know with the chagrin mistake and then ot was just a complete shit show like they just didn't show up at all it felt like a completely different game when mm-hmm. watching ot compared to the the way they played at five on five and even on special teams today like it I don't know. It's a, it's a tough one to analyze because, you know, three on three only happens so often as well. You know, you don't really get a, a good sample size on things and, you know, it's, it's a bit tough to, to, you know, understand what's plaguing this, this team in terms of three on three, but, uh, the execution just isn't there on any of the passes or any of the, any of the you know transition play it's just nothing's going for them there and so it's definitely an area of concern for me so I definitely want to see better from them uh the next time we're in that situation
1: yeah definitely and and the only time will tell I mean they're they're gonna need some more practice on their three on three but let's not <laughs> yeah. kid ourselves I mean like their five on five it has uh been looking a little bit better um as of the last couple of games, right? But uh, Matthews, I mean, this is only his third five-on-five goal, right? Uh, the Leafs had have difficulties in generating some offense in, in five-on-five play. The last couple of games have, have been have shown otherwise. Um, do you think Scott that that this is a regression, I guess, to to the mean where the um, the the goals are finally or the pucks are finally hitting the back of the net, or do you think Keith was able to employ something kind of new that's resulted in this uh, this uptick in uh, offensive generation i guess
0: yeah I, I think part of it is definitely a regression uh, as i mentioned with some of those expected goals results the Leafs are owed better than what they've ha- is sort of seen or or played like this year in terms of the actual sort of on ice results um but in saying that uh, i i think there's there have been a couple of key things that have happened in in the in in this recent stretch one is that Sheldon has clearly felt more comfortable rolling four lines than he did early in the year. He he was not happy with the way that Nicholas Obey-Kubell was playing early on in the season. It, he did a lot of tinkering with Nick Robertson, trying to find Nick a place in the roster. Now it feels, and it, and that's part of that start that I talked about in terms of their play early on tonight, it just feels like he's comfortable going one, two, three, four through the lines and, and seeing what they can create in terms of just constant pressure, fresh legs, all of that. And that was the tale of those first few minutes. The Leafs were, for seven or eight consecutive shifts there, spending more time in the offensive zone than even in the neutral zone. They were really controlling play early on in the game. And it wasn't just the Matthews line. It wasn't just the, the Taveras line. It was the yarn crook line, etc. Dennis Malgin, who's, who's found a nice, a nice niche yeah, for himself. I for thought sure. Pierre Engvall had a decent game tonight. Um, so there, there were, there are some bright spots developing in the bottom six. And that goes a long way. The Leafs were hoping to be better defensively in their bottom six this year. And then the offense on top of that, I think they expected it would just be a bonus if it came and really it, it hasn't been there at least consistently throughout this, this first quarter of the season here. So it's been nice. Uh, I think from their perspective, it's probably been a, a, a little bit of a relief in, in this recent stretch to see those guys contributing, even if it's not finding the score sheet. He, he, and, and we saw Yarnbrook score the other night and that kind of a thing. But if you, if you sort of scroll through the, the bottom sixes of the league and look at their scoring, they're still not actually producing at a particularly high clip on the whole uh, this season. But if they can just be good enough offensively and continue to suppress shots defensively so that the Leafs continue to have these Thirty to twenty shots on goal nights. That's a That's that is a recipe for success, especially when Austin starts to to really heat up. Uh, and we know that that's going to come. You, you mentioned the three five on five goals yes. this year. Two of those, if if you recall, are are on with tonight's and and his first goal of the season. They're on tips, right? Yeah. So. He, he hasn't really been shooting it into the net like you'd expect of a guy who scored 60 goals last season. So mm. uh, that's going to come. There's going to be a stretch where he has a, a hat-trick one night and a two-goal night the next night, and the Leafs really start to feel like they're the Leafs of last season that set that franchise record in points, right? So uh, it it there's an inevitability to Austin and some of those guys <laughs> really heating up. Uh, that I'm sure the Leafs love that they're they mentioned it on the broadcast tonight. I'm sure the Leafs love that they've got four – Twenty-point guys, but really, when you look at the the sum of those four guys, you outside of Tavares uh, and maybe Nylander, you could definitely make a case that that Mitch Marner, even on this point streak that he's been on, and and Austin Matthews, that you'd, you'd almost expect them to produce more than they have, and to to be on a projection for a hundred points rather than eighty or ninety points, right? So uh, if they can, if that catch up starts to happen, they'll be just fine.
1: Now, do you think that this is going to be a concern, I guess, um, if they they end up on a lull let's say later on in the season or heading into the playoffs even right Um, we saw at times I mean uh, Marner had had bad playoffs Matthews had some bad playoffs like we've seen issues where um, where they're unable to just hit the gas and start clicking again right and it has been uh, a a pretty long stretch that Matthews has been playing under par to what we expect out of him especially considering last year Uh, do you think this is a worrying trend that they're not able to I guess click right there right then and there and just try to uh, write themselves.
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely a little bit of that that happens with this team. I think some of it is inevitable when you when you've got a salary structure like they do. Depth scoring is never going to be the strength, especially when they can't uh, sort of retain guys like Zach Hyman and Ilya Mikheyev and the, the 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 projects that they bring in and then build up and have success with, but can't afford to to resign. So they kind of hit the restart clock on the Dennis Malgans of the world, right? Um, that's always going to be a tricky game for them to play. Uh, but I don't think it's a, it's necessarily a recipe for failure. I right? just think you're going to need them to get hot at the right time. You're going to need good health. And ultimately, you're going to need good goaltending, which hasn't always been the case in the playoffs. And irrespective of whether all four of those guys are going, the Leafs still have it in them to be a dominant shift to shift team. I think Sheldon Keith is a capable coach um that there there are the pieces of the puzzle there and i almost wonder whether it's a forward that they they ought to sort of target at the deadline rather than a defenseman there's we'll see what happens with morgan riley and whether his absence from late in this game is cause for concern uh obviously jake muzzin is a huge question mark tj brody's going to get back eventually and be tj brody i have no doubt about that but if if they if they need secondary scoring maybe that's that's the incumbent uh sort of need that they ought to fill rather than going after another defenseman i don't think they're going to be able to acquire a true top of sort of top four anchor defenseman yeah and is is upgrading over a rasmus Sandin or a timothy Williergren, for example or a justin hall is a minor upgrade over those guys going to take them further than adding a another scoring piece who can, who can be that secondary scorer that guys like Zach Hyman and Ilya Mikheyev were for them. Right. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how they approach the deadline because so much of the talk in this city is always about the defense, uh, especially (laughs) now that it's playing in front of two goalies with question marks. And I almost wonder whether it's worth doubling down on, on scoring and playing, playing to win games that way.
2: Yeah, I wanted to touch on that, like depth scoring in general, because you you talked about uh, the bottom six, uh, and I'm personally comfortable as well with the bottom six, but it's more that top six left wing, uh, that slot that Kerfoot's taking, that is sort of the biggest concern for me. And I know it is for quite a few Leaf fans as well. You know, he's got one goal in 19 games. It was on a power play, is zero at even strength, six points in 19 games overall. And that was playing majority of the minutes on Tavares and Nylander's, Nylander's wing. So you know, that's a pretty t- prime position to be in. And, um, you know, we have uh, Nick Robertson kind of knocking at the door here and he's been scratched four games in a row and we know he can score goals. Uh, Obviously there's some, you know, greenness to his game in terms of the way he plays and uh Keith mm-hmm. clearly is a little uncomfortable with him. But do you, you know, we talked about how potentially that left wing slot is a higher priority than right D, which is something that I personally agree with as well. I want to fill that hole over that. Do you think that Robertson can do that in this year or does he require a little more time to develop? And if he does require more time to develop, is that capable of doing just in practices or does he, would it be more beneficial for him to get sent down to the AHL maybe and uh, play there? Like what's your take on that whole situation?
0: Well, I think he needs to play one way or the other. Uh, Eventually, push comes to shove, and he's got to be in games. It's easy to forget how young he is because of his late birthday. It feels, because he was drafted so long ago, like he's been around the Leafs for forever, and he's been a named prospect for a long time, and it's incumbent on him to take that next step and become that second-line left winger that they've coveted. But ultimately he, he's still a 21 year old kid. He's still, as you mentioned, green. And I think Sheldon's reservations with him defensively do have some merit. Yes, uh, for he's sure. very busy out there. Uh, Nick has always been a very busy, very active, very hardworking, energetic sort of buzz around the ice type of player. Uh, but he's not a particularly strong and hasn't ever really been a particularly strong player in his own zone. And uh, Sheldon clearly wants that top to bottom in all four lines. He doesn't want to feel like he's got a group out there that's a liability. Uh, I don't think Nick is a liability, and I think the scoring that he is capable of providing and that punch that he's capable of providing with his shot and his hands in tight, and his even his hand, some of the little slit plays he's made uh, under sticks off the wall this year, uh, all of that brings value in ways that a lot of their depth players don't provide. Uh, I think Dennis malgin has got a little bit of that in him, but even Dennis, I don't think Sheldon feels particularly comfortable playing Dennis in more than sort of 12, 13 minutes a night kind of thing. Um, So it's, yeah, it's a tricky thing because the guys who you, you'd in theory pencil in to provide something that some of the rest of that bottom six lacks tend to tend to be the players that Sheldon just can't wrap his head around playing Mm -hmm. the way that they, they maybe need to. So I think as a result, sheldon's going to be having sort of serious conversations with kyle in advance of the deadline about the types of players that that he needs and maybe not yet believing that that nick is that guy for him at least not this year
2: yeah that's for sure uh like i think it's pretty clear that keith isn't uh, all in on robertson in that top six left wing spot and you know kerfoot at the end of the day he is sort of a swiss army knife uh, and you know they've talked about it constantly about how you know, he can slot anywhere in the lineup and that top six left wing. I don't think at the end of the day, Keefe is happy with him there per se, but uh I do think that, you know, he thinks it's the best option. Um, But when it comes to next game in the game after, like how, how do you think they should go about dealing with Nick Robertson? Do you think they should just send him down if he's going to get scratched the next two? Or do you think he has a potential to come in if kerfoot you know has another maybe few games where he doesn't produce anything
0: i think whether they whether or not they send him down is should rest on on how long they're they're planning on keeping him there right i i don't think it does him the benefit that many people might believe it would for him yeah. to go down and play two or three games in the ahl and then be right back up uh i think that can create a lot of sort of discontinuity within a player's game and and just their feel feel on the ice their feel for the different levels uh the ahl game is much 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 different uh despite its proximity uh is much different than the nhl so uh and and they've got a weird thing going with the Marlies right now where a lot of their guys down there are clicking alex Stevens yeah. is playing really well adam goddad's playing really well right so there's there's a disruption even if nick's a uh, an impactful player there, and like the kind of player who can be a point per game player in the AHL. There's also a little bit of disruption there that you have to be cognizant of in terms of how their team's feeling about their line combinations right now. All of that. So he would want to be on the at want and need to be on the top power play there, which bumps a player who's probably feeling good about himself in that role right now. So, um, and that's I didn't even mention Logan Shaw and some of the other guys yeah. there, right? So uh yeah it's a tricky situation but if they are going to send him down it there needs to be some continuity for it they need to send him there for a good stretch have him go there and play 12 games in a month right and or play into Christmas and then reset in the new year and see where you're at maybe he comes back up if there's injuries or whatnot um but yeah whatever they do for Nick I think the most important piece is that that there's some consistency and some expectations that are set for him that he can strive towards because it just doesn't feel like there is that right now. It feels like he's kind of in limbo.
2: Yeah. And Keith and Dubas have talked about how they don't want to continue yo-yoing him from the AHL to the NHL. So that probably does play a factor in terms of keeping him in practice and getting him, you know, some Mm -hmm. NHL, you know, uh, time, at least in practice to, to build his game for sure. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's going to be interesting to see how uh, Keith kind of handles the situation. Obviously, you don't want to stunt a player's growth, right? Especially Robertson has shown uh, decent upside as well, right? Um, but I guess before we move on to our next topic, I just want to give a quick shout out for the show. If you guys are liking the episode, uh, make sure you, uh, you click like, make sure you share. Um, and we always want to hear from you. So tweet out at us. Um, and for all of our other great shows, you can hit subscribe to get uh, a notification for when we go live. Um, Scott, I wanted to touch on uh, on your book one more time because, um, well, first of all, congratulations on the book. I think that, that first and foremost, um, I can't begin to fathom the massive I guess undertaking that that is right in a book <laughs> <laughs> the scale of the skill on the Leafs draft. I mean there's so much history to kind of try to pick at and it's just a huge rabbit hole of of going down through the Leafs draft in, right. With this being your yeah. first uh your first book, um tell us a little bit about your experience about the process of, of I guess gathering all this information, going through all the interviews and uh just trying to research about this.
0: Yeah, it was uh it was a mammoth. Uh, I I knew it was going to be that going in i think you'd you'd be uh sort of numb to it if you if you weren't aware of of what you were expecting so i knew going into it that it was going to be a tall task i was not doing it like many people do for a book where i was where they take time off and the book is their their only thing right i was working a full-time job at the athletic uh we did in the middle of my authoring of the book the the year that it took me to write the manuscript literally right in the smack dab middle of that we had, my wife and I had our first kid and um, our house flooded so it was a it was a bit of a shit show if I'm being honest <laughs> it was a, a wild 12 months it, they, they, the process of writing a book is typically two years right a, a year to write and then a year to edit the editing happens mostly by other people I chip into that process and contribute and you go over the cover and I had to secure someone like Steve to do the forward and all of that had to happen in the second stage of the process. But it's really the first page, the first stage of the process that's, that's difficult. And it was. Uh, as far as the actual book, it, it became 20 stories of behind the scenes. That's what it's about. It's truly about the title. It's not the complete history of beliefs at the NHL draft. It's not every draft and every player. Uh, that was actually originally the way that the publisher pitched the book to me. Um, but I, I really wanted it to be what I love doing, which is storytelling and sort of pulling back the curtain. And that's what it became. It became 50 plus interviews uh, and 20 20 individual stories that start at the beginning and end at the pandemic draft. So you get the chronology of it. Uh, but really, it'll skip from years, years to years and that kind of a thing. So uh, it was amazing ended up speaking with old agents general managers scouts players the families of players and really piecing together how these moves came together how players were picked and then how they were developed and brought to the leaps
1: wow in- i mean yeah that's uh yeah that sounds like a tall tall order i mean from all of your from the 20 stories that that were uh that was showcased in the book um give us give us one of your your i guess like favorite uh your favorite storyline that that you outlined give us a little teaser of what we can uh we can expect in this book
0: cough here, but uh one of probably my favorite story was the the jfj chapter i sat down with jfj who's obviously a pre polarizing person in in this part of the world <laughs> uh and and jfj was was great uh, great in in being defensive and owning up to his mistakes, but also great in pulling back the curtain and giving insight into what it's like to be a general manager, particularly of the Leafs at that time when things were so bad and they'd been so bad for so long. And then suddenly JFJ was the poster boy for that. So <coughs> it was, uh, it was, that, that was a fascinating conversation. And I think JFJ is a fascinating man that people know very little about when it's all said and done.
2: Yeah. And in your in your findings of like uh, what different drafting philosophies happened, have you noticed a difference between, you know, the trend of maybe doing a positional draft versus best player available? Has that shifted over time? And what would you say is the best draft philosophy? Because we've sort of seen that within Leafs drafting, even from as recent as like 2014 through 2017, you know, in our later rounds compared to, you know how we've been drafting the past couple of years.
0: The Reality for the Leafs is that if and, and any honest overview of the Leafs' history at the draft says that whenever they tried to draft for an identity or draft for a specific thing, they almost always performed poorly. So <laughs> I, I think that is is should be the basis for every team now, and I think the Leafs have come a long way that way, and I think that's part of the reason they've drafted better in the last decade than they had in any decade previously. Um, but a big part of it is. For a long, long time, Harold Ballard wanted his teams to be mean. Harold Ballard did not run an expansive scouting department. There were a handful of people who scouted players, mostly in Ontario. They would drive to, to Belleville or they would drive to Peterborough. Uh, and that's that's how they scouted players. They weren't scouting in Europe. They weren't scouting uh, in the United States, even the college ranks there for a long, long time when, when other teams were. Uh, and they wanted to draft... the the Tiger Williams, the Ty Domi's, and they found success with those players specifically. But there were a lot of players between Tiger Williams and and Ty Domi where they were drafting guys to to come in and and beat people up. That was the focus. And they wanted to be meaner and they wanted to be physical. And that's the kind of hockey that Harold liked to watch. So that's the kind of hockey player he went out and told everybody (laughs) to go after. And it meant that the Leafs were an abysmal for a long, long time, an abysmal drafting team uh and there were obviously success stories in there um guys like lanny and and andrew chuck and and all all along the way the leaps had some some really great success stories and and they wouldn't be the leaps if they didn't but uh by and large for for a long time it it was lean and that was one of the big things i learned about the book there's a chapter on that the infamous Belleville bulls draft where they drafted three players in the first round with three, first round picks all from the Belleville bulls. Oh, and, uh, I spoke to all of the people who were a part of that, the players, um, the, the head coach of that Belleville bulls team, who's now a scout in the NHL. Coincidentally, uh, Gord Stella, who was the GM at the time. And, uh, the, yeah they, they the the truth is they were just getting in the car every wednesday night because the bulls were the tended to be the only team that played on wednesday nights in the OHL and that's the those were the games they were most often going to and they had a favorite pub there and it just became a routine and and that's the reality of it for the leafs for a long long time it just wasn't a serious scouting wasn't a serious part of the way that they wanted to build their team and we know now obviously with Player development, uh, the the, am, the massive amateur scouting department that the Leafs have, the sports science piece of the puzzle, guys like Adam Nicholas that have rolled through, and Daryl Belfry that have rolled through, skills people, right? Uh, it's 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 a huge thing to them. They they spend millions and millions and millions of dollars every year off the ice on finding players and then bringing them along. So it's changed a uh, a lot over the years.
1: So one thing I wanted to ask you is. Um you mentioned how how scouting has come a long way there's a lot of investment that's being put into scouting right but goalies continue to be a a tough tough uh position to to draft for right so i guess how do you evaluate um how do you evaluate successful candidates uh for goalies whether it's the draft or or whether you're picking them up uh in, in the trade deadline or in the off season
0: yeah, for for me in the in the work I do at the Athletic, away from the storytelling and away from the book, uh, drafting and and sort of building my list out as far as goalies go is a very very tricky thing. I rely much more on others for that stuff. Uh, I feel like I have a really good gauge of forwards and defensemen and what makes a good NHL forward and how they're being drafted and developed and. Uh, how to identify them, especially forwards? Uh, defensemen are a little bit trickier just by nature because of the way that the position is played. But goalies are a whole different ball game. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, had, I had Spencer Knight ranked in the second round when when he was drafted in the early first round, right? Yeah. Um, I, I was a big believer in Jesper Wallstead and not a big believer in Sebastian Kosa. And I've tended to like the smaller goalies who often flail out, but also often become Dustin Wolf or Devin Levi who are about to break into the league and be legitimate NHL goaltenders at five foot 11, six feet tall, right? So it's a it's a weird business. There are pendulums in terms of the way that teams draft goalies as well. For a long time, teams were quite comfortable drafting the, the agile, athletic, maybe smaller sort of six foot one goalie, right? The, the Marc-Andre Fleury's, the Jonathan Quick's, those guys who, who really relied on their explosiveness post to post. Now, uh, increasingly, teams are looking for the the big guys, right? The, the Freddie Andersons, the Devin Dubniks of the game, the Ben Bishops of the game that have come in and, and played a, <laughs> a blocking style that fills the net. So it's that part of it has changed a lot and it still remains, without question, in all of professional sports, one of the most difficult positions to scout for. You could ask a goalie coach. You could ask Marty Brodeur, Patrick Wah, Dominic Kashik The same question, they would give you the same answer. Even guys who who are geniuses on that side of the sport, who've lived that side of the sport, uh, they go into rinks and find it extremely difficult to to project forward what what that goalie is going to look like at age 25 26 in the nhl uh and then even the good ones that get there still have bad years right look at Mm -hmm. look at winnipeg was playing tonight look at what connor hellebuck has done this year versus last year right it's still such a difficult thing to do every single year we are a long long way from the really the golden generation of goaltenders in the early to late 2000s of Roberto Alongo and Henrik Lundqvist and Jonathan Quick and Tim Thomas and Carey Price. There were, there were nine, 10 fide Vesna quality goalies in the NHL back then. And now who is there, right? There there's Andre Vasilevsky. There's hopefully Shesterkin, if he can continue to perform at the level he's performed at. And maybe there's Connor Hellebuck who didn't even look like that last year. So uh, it's a, it's it's increasingly a shrinking list in terms of, the the quality of the goaltenders uh, in today's game. And on the flip side, the the forwards, I think, deserve a lot of credit for how talented they now are.
2: Yeah, that's for sure. Would you throw uh, Sorokin on that list, given that we just faced the Islanders? Because he's one that I think is definitely, after these past two seasons, kind of going off the goalie charts there. uh, He's a phenomenal talent. He's been playing really well this season as well.
0: Yeah. Sorokin's a stud. And I don't want to be the the revisionist who pats himself on the back, but when everybody was talking last year about Thatcher Demko, I kept pounding the, the Sorokin table. And I truly yeah. do believe that if there's going to be a goaltender, and that's not just with <clears throat> Demko's struggles early on this year, I actually think Demko's a fabulous goalie, but uh Sirokin is looks legit. He's just there there's there are no holes when he's in the net. It almost never feels like he moves too much. I think the biggest problem a lot of goalies in today's NHL faced is just that they're way too active in the night. I think Eric Schalgren can be suspect of that. Yeah. Um, we've seen a lot of goalies come through. Curtis McElhaney <laughs> practically dove around the net, right? So um, there, there have been a lot of those in Toronto. But the, the, the true goalies who are really, really good in today's NHL are extremely compact, hold their lines and positioning really well. And swallow those first saves so they don't have to make the athletic sort of second saves, right? And I just think Sorokin does that so well. He always seems to be square to shooters. He always seems to know where the puck is going. And that's a a very, very difficult, difficult thing to to accomplish, right?
2: Yeah, and it speaks to the difficulty in projecting this as well, because, you know, Sorokin was a third rounder, uh, Shostokin was a fourth rounder, and then Samsonov was a first rounder you know, all mm-hmm. within a span of a year, you know, 2014 and 2015. So, you know, you look at their careers now and, and you can kind of see the difference. But uh, yeah, goalies are difficult. They're hard to predict. And, you know, the goal, the the leaf strategy of kind of just throwing a bunch of darts at the wall, you know, at least recently in terms of guys like Petruzzelli and Shalgren, and then, you know, the mm-hmm. guys we drafted in, you know, Akhtyamov, Pexa Peksa, uh, Hildeby, yeah, Uh, I think is actually a pretty good strategy, you know, using those mid round, mid round picks to sort of just throw a bunch of darts at the wall. I was wondering, like, do you, would you mean more, um, like, would you think it's better to hold off till round five and six and and just try to, you know, throw at least a, a random dart? Or do you feel that goalies, uh, that teams still tend to go for goalies early where you know, when you get to those later rounds, the the crop of goalies is just, you know, barren. Cause you know, you see guys yeah. like Devin Levi and he's still in the seventh round, you know, he mm-hmm. was drafted in the seventh round. So so was um, Dustin Wolf. Yeah, exactly. So do you feel, you know, using those mid round picks is still a good strategy or would you even wait further than that?
0: I don't think you ever need to sort of box yourself into one or the other. I think certainly there is there is value to be found in rounds five, six, seven on goaltenders. We've seen that over the years. How how often do people talk about Pecorino, right? Like it was. Yeah. it became an, an every single broadcast mention. And uh, part of that I actually think got carried away into this belief that you didn't need to draft goalies high and that goalies uh, in terms of star prospects weren't at a premium when The reality is at any point in NHL history, if you look at the makeup of the 31 or 30 or 32 starting goalies in the NHL, the vast majority of them are taken in rounds one and two, even still. Um, So uh, it's still, there's still a reason that those kids rise to the top. Now there are a lot of mistakes that happen in particular in round two. It almost feels like when the second round starts, teams just feel like they have a license to take goalies and that's how you've end up with a lot of mistakes on guys like Zach Fupali who have a nice moment at a tournament that don't have the track record. But I think the guys that have the two, three, four year track record, which is still very rare, they tend to, they tend to pan out. I think Jesper Walstad, despite getting off to a bit of a slow start in Iowa this year, Yepper, he is going to be really, really good. And yeah. the reason he's going to be really, really good is because he's always been really, really good. And yeah. there's something to be said for just repetition at all levels, at all positions. So when you can find that, and there's a goalie that has done that and accomplished that, certainly they warrant being selected higher than than some of the kids further down. But there are still kids who do that, especially the smaller goalies, I think, who do that and, and don't get drafted uh, as high as they should. And that's where the true value is. The true value for me remains in the, in the Devin Levi's and the Dustin Wolves, even if there are 20 chief amateur scouts with NHL clubs who believe you shouldn't be drafting six foot or under goaltenders.
2: Yeah. And do you think there's still a size draft inefficiency that still gets exploited? You see guys like Cole Caulfield sort of, dropped to 15 and Nick Robertson, who you had much higher than where he was drafted at 53, Mm -hmm. do you still think the smaller player tends to fall more than he should? Or do you think that's seen in a correction?
0: Uh, I think it's, it came back and now I think the pendulum is beginning to swing the other way, especially with defensemen teams have seen what Tampa and St. Louis did winning Stanley cups with big, big blue lines. And they're all trying to emulate that. I yeah. actually think the teams that, in this moment, as teams try to emulate that, the teams that go a little bit in the other direction are going to make hay because when the pendulum swings at the draft, it's almost always a few years behind. I think yeah. what happens at the draft is a delay of what's happening at the NHL level, and as a result, the draft just just is constantly playing catch up. So I, I think as teams get get their heart set on oh, we have to take the six foot three, six foot four defender you're going to increasingly see guys like Wayne Hudson, guys like Owen Zellweger, some of the better D prospects that continue to come through the draft who are a little bit undersized. That's where the value is going to be. It's going to be in the Sam Girards. And I know Sam wasn't a big part of that cup run last year due to injury, but Sam is a fabulous player. And Wayne Hudson's going to be a fabulous player. And Owen Zellweger is going to be a fabulous player. So uh, I still think there is value to be found there. That doesn't mean you don't go yeah. after the, the Caden ghoulies of, of the draft who are legitimate in their own right in other ways. Uh, I was too low on Moritz Cider, for example. Um, but it, yeah, I do think that that the this that sort of size bias that you talked about, it is beginning to creep back in uh, after yeah. a, a long time of teams getting a little bit more comfortable uh, with yeah. drafting the smaller players. Uh, but it's always going to be there. I think you're always going to have the Alex Debrinkets, the Cole Caulfields, last year's draft. Who were the fallers, right? It was the small wingers. It was yeah. Jonathan Leckeramaki, it was Joachim Kemmel, right? Those were the guys mm-hmm. with the talent uh, who tended to slip. Now, there could be an argument made that both Leckeramaki and Kemmel haven't had great years. So yeah. maybe that that fall was warranted, but it's still just thematically, I, I think it speaks to the way that people are thinking. About small wingers in particular, and and definitely uh, about small defensemen.
2: And do you feel that way about, let's say, oversized forwards? Like I'm thinking of a guy like Soderblom, where he's like six eight, falls to round six. Do people just see him as he's too big to have hands or skill, like have that skill, and they just see him as this, like, oh, he's just going to be a power forward.
0: I think than, I think yeah. more often it honestly goes the other direction. I think more often people look. For reasons to give those guys opportunities. Everybody wants to give the forget Soderbaum. Soderbaum's a unicorn with the way that he yeah. handles the puck. But the, the Michael Rasmussen pick to Detroit in recent memory, the Samuel Hellanius pick to the Los Angeles Kings in recent memory. There is a, a, a huge appetite um, to, to draft those six foot five, six foot six forwards. And the reality, the actual reality is that. There aren't many of them in the league, if any, on a given night, right? The yeah. the Brian Boyles of the world are are a, a sort of dying breed. And yeah. even even below that, certainly at the sort of six foot three, six foot four level, you've got the Miko Rantnans, the Evgeny Malkins. Um, the, those guys, the Blake Wheeler was great for a long, long time. Those guys did exist. Kevin Hayes but above that, in the that sort of stratosphere above that, where everybody thinks they're the only team that's getting that player when they draft one of those guys, those guys almost never, ever, ever make it. Uh, and Soderblom is a, a pretty rare case, I would argue. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, let's shift our focus a little bit about uh, to back to the Leafs, right? Um, Dubas has been at the helm for our draft in the over the last four seasons, right? And the Leafs have um they've traded a, quite a bit of our, our draft picks away, right? And and we've really had to rely on the later half of the uh of the draft to, to find some some uh some gems in the rough, right? Apart from the 2020 draft where we had like 12 picks or whatever. But uh, how do you think um uh how do you think dubis has done uh, apart from the Matthew Nyes of the world or the Nicholas Robertsons um in the latter round? Of, of draft how do you think uh, how, how do you think Dubas has done in those situations
0: I think they've drafted pretty well I think even if a lot of those guys don't make it they're getting better results out of a lot of their players that they've drafted in that sort of four to seven range than a lot of clubs are getting nowadays uh, even in players like Nick Abruzzese who's having a decent year and was obviously a star in college and played at the Olympic team that's good value. Whether he makes it or not, and whether he becomes a full-time player or not, if he's a top AHL player and was a top player at all of the levels that he played at below that, that's a that's a good go at a pick like that. So there have been a lot of players that that fit into that mold. Ryan Tverberg, yeah. i got a chapter on him in the book. Uh, fascinating, fascinating story. It's the final chapter in the book about the pandemic draft and how the Leafs were identifying players and specifically. How they drafted with their last pick of that draft, drafted Tverberg who'd had the weirdest year you could possibly imagine. Uh, and whose dad was literally sending tape of <laughs> that. He was filming himself to the Leafs front office to try and get them to draft him kind of thing. Um, so yeah, th- th- those picks they've done well. Tverberg's a very, very good college hockey player at this point. And in a seventh round pick becoming a leading scorer at a program like UConn, which is kind of the middle of the pack program, although they're at, top of the pack program this year. They're one of the better ranked teams in the country. Um, those the, those picks have have done have done reasonably well. So uh, certainly I don't think they are the issue with the Leafs prospect pool not being one of the better prospect pools in the league. I think the bigger issue is just that they've traded so many picks, right? It was the Seth Jarvis pick as a means to get rid of Patrick Marlowe's contract, right? It, those are the things, obviously, it, there's nothing they could do about what's happening with Rodian Amarov. So mm-hmm. there have been between trades and, and health and all of that. It's just, it has pulled a lot of that, that sort of top cream of the crop talent away from them. Uh, but even in Matt Nye's and Robertson, obviously who you guys mentioned, those aren't the late round picks, but those both look like good picks. So, uh, at least in the ranges that they were taken. So uh, I think I think Kyle and this group has has done a, a reasonably good job at finding talent. Uh, William is having a decent first pro season with the Marlies. There's there are pieces of the puzzle there, even if they become sort of marginal pieces for the NHL team. Pieces of the puzzle there that they've they've done a good job of identifying.
2: Yeah, Tverberg was, you know, the fifth last pick of that draft. And, you know, he's providing some pretty tremendous value already in terms of his college system. Uh, I did want to touch on one prospect in, in Ty Voigt, because you discussed mm-hmm. the uh, the pandemic year, and he sort of, sort of he, I don't think he played a game in his draft yeah. year. So do you have any insight as to, like, how teams go about, sk- is it just from previous years, or are there combines in that situation where Ty Voigt you know, even during the pandemic can at least showcase his skills. Like, how does that work?
0: Yeah. With Ty, it was a bit of a unique situation that he did get a chance at the very end of it when restrictions eased to skate a little bit and to showcase himself for NHL teams, the Leafs did skate him. Uh, so all of that was, was kind of happening, but really in that year, that didn't happen until like just before the draft where restrictions were in place, uh, for so long, and then suddenly they were eased just a little bit to give those guys an opportunity to skate for a few months. And it was the same for the kids behind them, who are actually draft eligible in this year's uh, NHL draft. The kids behind them were doing the same in the OHL and in the QMJHL. The WHL draft happens at an earlier age. But the Callum Ritchies of the world were doing the same, where they were in these underground skating sessions. They were sending tape out to teams. That was the process for, for players like... Callum Ritchie in the OHL or Ty Voigt uh, in advance of the Leafs picking him and Ty's a, another kid that whether he makes it or not he looks like the kind of guy who might become uh, at his ceiling a, a good quadruple A guy right like your hope for Ty Voigt is that he becomes kind of that Nick Patan type the, the player yeah. who's dominant at lower levels who maybe with the right right opportunity strikes gold and figures it out in the NHL but maybe he doesn't and he just becomes a bit of a tweener and I mean, Patan's played for several different NHL teams and he's still sort of kicking around as a 13th forward. And every organization needs those 13th, 14th forwards to to call up and inject into the lineup and potentially even play on a power play. Even if Voight is a marginal NHLer, I expect that he'll be a PP2 guy, right? That, that's yeah. kind of what you imagine imagine for a player like Voight. And this year, if he makes the, the U.S. World Junior Team, which I think is about a coin flip, uh, that would be great for him as well, just to just as a showcase and so that people start to familiarize themselves with his game, because he's obviously one of the best forwards this year in 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 the OHL. Uh, he's been one of the OHL's leading scorers. He's really the driver on that team in Zarnia, uh, and now he's got an opportunity to 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 work his way on. I expect for sure he'll be a camp invite to Plymouth for the selection camp for USA Hockey. and Then he'll, I think he'll be given a real opportunity to make that team as as kind of a, a depth winger. So uh yeah, Ty's uh another one that again, just good value, whether he whether he makes it or not. I think they've they've got a good pick there. There are, are a lot of kids that were drafted around Ty and around Aberzesi and around Tverberg in those drafts who are who are nothing prospects at this point, right? And yeah. that Ty tie tie continues to to progress. So that's all you can hope for.
1: Okay. And what, one last question, uh, just a, a quick rapid fire. Um, what is or who is your favorite least prospect outside of the last of, of the first three rounds that we have in our system still?
0: Uh, I, I hate to go back to a kid that we just talked about, but I, uh, I, I really like Turberg. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if he's going to make it, but I think he's going to be a good AHL playmaker. Uh, and I think they're going to sign him when he's done at UConn. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's already, because he's a local Toronto kid, he, he's already sort of ingratiated himself into the Leafs organization. He skates with them every summer. He's around guys like Marner and all of the locals. Before that, he was around Travis Dermott, right? Before Dermott moved on. And Jake Muzzin skates in the area with him. And uh, he's playing ultimate Frisbee with those guys in the summer. And so th- that some of that has already started to happen where I think the Leafs view him uh, even if they haven't been able to get him into a training camp to, because he's a college athlete, I think they view him as a as a piece of the puzzle long term. Even if it's not potentially as an NHLer, so uh, yeah, he I think he just has to keep playing like he has, and he's he's a hardworking sort of skill winger, and the Leafs love the hardworking skill wingers. So, um, and and their fans also tend to respond to that type of a player. So uh, it's uh, he he's got a good thing going for him, and I'm a fan of the way that he plays
1: perfect perfect all right well uh, that's going to do it here uh with us on game over toronto uh scott just give us a shout out for uh for the book give us a shout out for where uh where everyone everyone can come uh can find you and uh, catch some more more uh from you
0: yeah on the clock behind the scenes with the toronto maple leafs at the nhl draft uh, it's available in every chapters indigo or cole's in ontario if you're if you're from around these parts. if you're not Uh, it, it probably might still be in your local bookstore, but definitely on Amazon. Uh, and if you're doing some black Friday or Christmas shopping this week, it's, I, I, I promise you the Leafs fan or hockey junkie in your life will love it.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Um, yeah, that's going to do it here for with us. Uh, thank you everyone for watching. Uh, thank you, Scott, for again, coming on. It was was great having you as our inaugural guest. So, uh, um, yeah, appreciate it. Alright, that's gonna do uh from us. We'll see you guys next episode. Bye.
0: Game over Powered by Sports Interaction Canada Sports yeah. Book.
1: Sorry. <laughs>